Well, several of you uh, have been following this journey with my family of my oldest son, Jack, uh, breaking his arm. He broke his arm uh, in September. I, I really thank a lot of you who have talked to him. He's not here this morning. Uh, but uh, who's talked to him over the past several weeks, have encouraged him with his broken arm. Uh, we celebrated this week. The cast came off. Uh, so yes, he is uh, free from the cast after eight weeks. Um, but what we discovered happened uh, over the past eight weeks, especially early on, right after he broke his arm. And it was a, uh, if you didn't see the photos, very gnarly break. But what happened is that after he broke the arm, uh, Molly and I, and, and even Jack, sent a, the, the photo of the break to, like, everybody. Um, we, we sent it to friends and family, you know, people checking in. We're like, yeah, look at this. Look, like, your lower arm should not look like the letter S. Uh, but that's, I'm, I'm sorry if that's too much. Some of you are already like, oh, I don't know if I can hear that this morning. Uh, but, yeah, his, 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 the break was bad. That's what I'm trying to say. But what happened is the, the photo kind of spread like a wildfire throughout the school. So, so by the time Jack went back to school after breaking his arm, uh, teachers that he doesn't even have knew about it. Uh, teachers that he didn't even have were showing that photo to their class uh, because it was so remarkable. Uh, and so what, what we discovered is that, and maybe you even sense this whenever you've seen something like this, like a gruesome break or, or an accident, is that in some ways we, we see that our nature is revealed in kind of glorying in that type of brokenness. There's something about how the, the arm isn't supposed to look like that. The body wasn't meant to be distorted like that, but we, we just can't help but take a look at it. And it seems to me that also we can glory not in, not in just broken bones or car accidents as we kind of pass them on the interstate, but we can also in some ways glory in broken relationships. There's, a, there's the cultural obsession. We, we see this all the time with celebrity breakups. Um, I know that nobody in this room cares about that, uh, but uh, celebrity breakups get a lot of attention, right? Because we want to know, oh, who, who's with who now, and why did so-and-so break up? Uh, we want to get all the dirt uh, when friends or family uh, are in a fight. There's just something in our, in our nature that kind of wants to hear about what's going on there. And the church, sadly, has not escaped this reality either. In fact, uh, there's a certain amount of drama in the church that so often we, we just accept. Uh, that that we, we know that two or more people in a conflict, and, and, and whether we like to admit it or not, our flesh kind of likes the drama of it. Kind of likes the disunity. It likes that feeling of satisfaction that we get to pick a side. Like our, our ears kind of are, are tickled by this. Like, oh, I, I want to... I want to know more about that fight, and I actually want to know about it so I can pick a side. And there's something in us that kind of likes that, if we're honest. But today's passage that, that Jason just read uh, shows us that instead of settling for drama or instead of even liking disunity, that we're actually called to hate it. We should actually hate conflict in the church. And we are called to strive for the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. We already have unity in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
Maybe a few questions already pop up as you are thinking about this text. You know, what exactly is happening here? Paul, in a fairly remarkable way, uh, mentions these two names, kind of out of the blue. Uh, he, he calls out two women in the church. So Euodia and Sidtiki, these are two ladies in the Philippian church. And Paul is pleading with them, agree in the Lord. You see that in verse 2. He says, I entreat you, Euodia, I entreat you, Syntyche, agree in the Lord. And these women, as we read in verse 3, have labored alongside Paul. Uh, They've been there with Paul, laboring for the gospel. Their names are in the book of life that we see there at the end of verse 3. So these ladies, these two women, are Christ followers. These are believers in Christ, and yet they desperately need reconciliation. Paul also asks others in the church to help these women come back to the table in unity. So something significant is going on here. Now there are are several things, uh, if we just read this text, we actually don't know. We don't get the answers to several questions. First of all, we, we don't know what role, if any, Euodia and Syntyche had in the church. We, we know that the Philippians would have likely known who these women are and what role, if they did have one, they, they had in the church, but Paul doesn't say, right? We also don't know what the conflict is about. Paul doesn't say what they're fighting about. But whatever it is, it's reached a point where it's affecting the whole church, and so he sees a need to address it. We also read about this uh, true companion there in uh, verse 3. There is actually a lot of theories about who this could be, whether it's a particular person in the church, maybe an elder of the church. Uh, It's just not clear, but there's this Is this person, maybe several people that Paul is referring to, a true companion that he's calling on to help Euodia and Syntyche with their conflict? We also see this other name, Clement. Again, Clement kind of comes out of the blue. We don't really know who this person is either, probably a leader in the church. But here's the thing. We, We don't need to have any of those questions answered in order to understand the issue at hand. And the issue at hand is that the unity of the church has been threatened and it has to be addressed. Unity has been threatened and Paul is addressing it. So we are in the home stretch through uh, our study in the book of Philippians. So if you haven't joined us before, if this is your first Sunday, welcome. Again, is so glad to uh, see you and have you here worshiping with us. Uh, I think this is week eight or nine in Philippians. As we uh, kind of round the corner, we have two more weeks to go in the book of Philippians. But today, uh, we're going to be looking at meaningful unity. That's the topic that we have today. And the reason uh, we're even talking about meaningful unity is because we have for this whole series, been looking at the book of Philippians through this lens of meaning. And so what we've wanted to say is that a life worthy of the gospel, a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, it has meaning. It actually gives meaning to our life. And so the question is this morning, how does the gospel of Christ bring us meaningful unity? How does the gospel speak into this? If you're taking notes, here's the main idea. Meaningful unity is realized through agreeing in and anchoring in the Lord. So two points this morning. Meaningful unity is realized 
through agreeing in the Lord and anchoring in the Lord. So let's start with agreeing in the Lord, which we actually see that phrase used again in verse 2. Paul calls on Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Literally, this means, this word agree means think the same thing. Think the same thing. Paul is actually revisiting uh, a theme that he's touched on previously in this letter, this theme of unity. This is not the first time it's popped up. Uh, if you recall, at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. And again, standing firm is also in our passage this morning. You see that in verse 1. So Paul says, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Again, that's chapter 1. He says the same phrase, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul also uses the same word for the, the mind or, or agreeing in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Literally, by thinking the same thing. By having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. And then he goes on in chapter 2. If you remember, uh, he talks about having the mind of Christ. That, that we as believers have the mind of Christ. Which is to say we, we agree in the Lord. We agree in the Lord having the mind of Christ. And this is not uh, a unity faking this isn't where you might just want to kind of gloss over something and say you have unity, where you say peace, peace when there is no peace. No, this is a full-throated, robust unity in Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask, at least in this situation, why was this not happening with these two women at the church of Philippi? Again, we, we're not given the answer as to exactly what they are fighting about, what the conflict is, but we do know that they are at odds. Now, it's, it's unrealistic to think that any, anyone in the church, that any of us are going to agree on everything. That's not what the call is from Paul or for us this morning, that we are uh, all going to agree on every single point in life but what Paul is talking about is those conflicts that threaten the unity of the church. The things that he's already talked about earlier in this letter, things like rivalry and conceit and selfish ambition and grumbling. Do you remember when we talked about grumbling in chapter 2? These are the features of disunity in the church. That's the ugliness, that's the fruit that comes forth whenever there is conflict, sinful conflict in the church. And so whatever is going on with these two ladies, very likely those things were features. Very likely was selfish ambition, there was grumbling, there was arguing. In the book of James chapter 4, we're told that fights and quarrels are a result of want, wanting something so badly and not getting it. You just you desire something and you just want it and when you can't get it, you'll lash out. You'll argue. You'll get nasty. I want it. That may be going on here with these women. Maybe these women wanted different leaders than they had in the church. Maybe, maybe they wanted a certain role in the church and were prevented from getting it. Maybe one or both. 
Again, we don't know. Maybe, maybe they disagreed on certain theological or ministry issues in the church. Now, if Euodia and Syntyche's conflict was theological in nature, if we were to suppose that maybe this is exactly what they were arguing about, there was something going on with doctrine in the church and they were, uh, they were bothered by it and they were at odds with one another. If, if that is the case, we know it wasn't a first order or primary issue. In other words, Paul has been very bold, not just in this letter, but if you've read Paul in any other part of the New Testament, he doesn't shy away from when the gospel is threatened. Right? We just saw that in chapter 3. He's been pretty bold in calling out incorrect views of the gospel. And he doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that here, does he? Euodia and Syntyche know the gospel. They, they know the truths of the gospel. But we have seen a lot of conflict over the years in the church when we try to elevate certain doctrines or issues to first order or primary status. We've seen that happen throughout church history. And when this happens, even when it's just a small group within the church, we can see that disunity can spread through the entire body very quickly. Gavin Ortland is a theologian, pastor. He wrote a book a couple of years ago. It's a great book. It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And Finding the Right Hills to Die On is a book where he writes about how to assess what makes for a first, second, or third order doctrine in the church? What, what, what is primary? What is a non-negotiable for the evangelical church? And then what are second, third, fourth order issues that might come under that? Listen to what he says in this book. He says, quote, It might initially sound good to say that all doctrines are equally important, but, it is difficult, but that is a difficult statement to justify biblically. Paul, for instance, speaks of the gospel as a matter of first importance. On other topics, he often gives Christians greater latitude to disagree and goes further on other issues to command Christians not to quarrel over opinions. Why is it important to make doctrinal dis distinctions? What is at stake? For starters, equating all doctrin doctrines leads to unnecessary division and undermines the unity of the church. What, what he's saying here is, yes, yes, we should be united to fight together in defense of the gospel, to fight for primary doctrines in the church. We should fight for uh, things like the, the virgin birth or justification by faith alone. That those are non-negotiables in the church, but secondary issues and, and especially preferences should never be an occasion for disunity and strife in the church. Now, now, whatever the reason for Euodia and Syntyche's conflict, Paul was certain on one thing, that they should agree in the Lord. He loves them too much to let them to continue down this path. He loves the church too much to see it continue in disharmony. I love, I love verse 1. We could spend a, a whole message really just on, first, on verse 1, because once again, we're, we revisit this very affectionate language that Paul has for the church in Philippi. Uh, we saw this at the very opening of the letter. He loves them. He longs for them. They are his crown and joy. 
And I think it's really important that we see what verse 1 says before we see what he has to say in verses 2 and 3. Paul is saying in verse 1, I'm about to say some really hard things. I'm about to say some hard things, but first I want you to know I love you. I love you so much. And because I love you, I have some things to say. He also sees that Euodia and Syntyche are going to need some help from other church members to reconcile. Apparently, it had gotten so bad that a third party needed to step in to help these women. Before I went on staff at the church I came from, Redemption Story Church, but before I rolled on staff there, uh, the staff had a third-party conciliator come uh, work through some issues that were going on there on staff. And so uh, a conciliator is basically a mediator that leads reconciliation conversations between two or more people. And so uh, things on staff at Redemption Story had gotten really bad because of some previous uh, toxic leadership and some uh, sin that had been revealed on staff. And so there were a lot of people on the church staff that were at odds with one another. And so there was a need for a third party to come in to help them. And if you talk to any of the staff people at Redemption Story Church who were a part of that, they will say it was one of the most, if not the most, humbling experiences of their life. It was painful at times to acknowledge sin, to, to acknowledge hurt, to ask for forgiveness where sin had been committed between two people or more. But if you ask any of them today, they will say that there was some beautiful fruit that came from that. In fact, I would say that if that had not happened, if a third party had not come in to help my brothers and sisters at Redemption Story Church, it's very likely the church does not exist today. But by God's grace, it does. Are we willing, church, are we willing to humble ourselves and ask for help when conflict seems to persist? Are we willing to do that? And are we willing to give help? To give help when others are in need? This is the role of the church. This is the role of the church because the unity of the church is at stake. Can you imagine how, can you imagine how humbling it must have been for Euodia and Syntyche to hear their names read aloud whenever this letter was being read in Philippi? Can you imagine what the what that felt like, how humbling that must have been. Paul, Paul certainly could have left their names out. Paul could have said, I know there are some of you who are in conflict and I want you to agree in the Lord. He could have said that, but instead, he says their names. And he says their names because they needed to be humbled. He knew that God needed to humble Euodia and Syntyche. When we are in the midst of sinful conflict, we are acting out of pride. That's the main driver. We need to be humbled because when we are in conflict like this, we are acting in pride. We, we are unwilling to address the log in our own eye, but we are happy to talk about someone else's speck. And we certainly do not live in an age where humility is valued. Humility was not valued in the Roman culture in the first century either. 
But agreeing in the Lord means humbling ourselves like Christ who did so all the way to the cross out of love. In fact, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that you and I can have any conversation about any topic, no matter how controversial, no matter how sensitive, no matter how painful, I believe that you and I can have any conversation if it's bathed in love and humility of Jesus Christ. We can. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that no matter how taboo or controversial or how long there's been hurt, that we can find a peace that surpasses all understanding in Jesus Christ? Friends, that, that is the power of the gospel I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Tuesday is election day. Do you know that? I'm kidding, of course, because you've probably received tons of mail. We see all the signs. We've seen all the commercials on TV. Partisan politics in the church has been such a painful thing to navigate, especially over the past 10 years or so. There's not just disagreements about uh, different issues between the two major political parties in this country, but there's disagreement on even how the church should enter into that space in the first place. So there's a lot of disagreement. And so, sadly, a lot of people have left a lot of churches, and there's been a lot of relational wreckage in its wake. Now, Here's here's what I have experienced. I don't know if you've experienced the same thing. There are a lot of really faithful Christians who have voted Republican and a lot of really faithful Christians who have voted Democrat. And you would probably be surprised to know how some of your friends have voted if you knew. Do you believe that? Democrats whose names are in the book of life and Republicans whose names are in the book of life. How do they agree in the Lord? How do they agree in the Lord? Is there room in our hearts for deep affection for the other brother or sister that you strongly disagree with politically? Is there deep affection for the other brother and sister? Now you might say to that, I agree with that, Jeff. I, I agree, but where does persuading others to see things differently come into play? I want to be able to persuade other Christians why voting for this candidate is better than voting for that one. Here's the deal. That can't happen. That can't happen well unless we agree in the Lord. It can't. In Philippians 4, I'm pretty confident that Paul had a very strong opinion about who was right and who was wrong between Euodia and Syntyche. And he could have shared his thoughts in Philippians 4. He could have said, Euodia, you're wrong. You're wrong, you need to agree with Syntyche. He could have said, Syntyche, you're wrong. What are you thinking? The right thing to do is agree with Euodia. Think about this. He doesn't say that. What he says to both of them is, agree in the Lord. I didn't point this out last week, but if you flip back to chapter 3, verse 15, 
If you look at that real quick, I, I didn't mention this in the sermon last week from this passage. It's almost like a parenthetical statement that Paul says here. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Do you see the word think there in verse 15? It's the same word used for agree here in chapter 4. And so what Paul is saying is, let those of you who are mature think the same thing, and if in anything you don't think the same thing, God will reveal that also to you. So if either Euodia or Syntyche is in error, God will reveal that. If the way another believer is thinking about voting or politics is in error, God will reveal that in time. But for today, agree in the Lord. Or today, stay anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's point number two, anchored in the Lord. Meaningful unity is realized through anchoring in the Lord. Paul says in verse one, stand firm in the Lord. Be anchored in him. And one of the ways that we are anchored in the Lord is to be present in the church. Chris mentioned this uh, a minute ago, that we are gathered together. And, and while this certainly does not save us, your church's attendance does not save you. It is, a, it is an expression of how you are anchored in the Lord as you gather as his body. One thing that we can say, all, of all the pain that was likely present here in the church in Philippi because of Euodia and Syntyche and their conflict, here's one thing we can say. They were still there, right? They were there. They hadn't left. They hadn't gone anywhere. They were, they were there. They were in a place. God had them in this place where they could be helped. It would have been very easy for either or both of them to give up and walk away from the church. But they were anchored in the Lord. Their names are in the book of life. What a grace. What a grace despite this conflict. As we've talked about, uh, as we are united to Christ by faith, there is an already but not yet aspect to our faith. We've, we've mentioned this a few times. You've probably heard this phrase before, already but not yet. So we've already been adopted now, but we will fully enjoy that adoption in heaven. In heaven. Uh, we've been sanctified now already. We're sanctified, but we will be fully sanctified in heaven and because that is true, we will enjoy perfect unity in heaven without the threat of conflict and sin. Perfect unity in heaven. And that should impact how we live today. Do you ever think about the already but not yet aspect to unity that we have in Jesus Christ? When we get to heaven, I, I actually, you know, I, I, I'm weird this way. Maybe you do this too. There are, there are, things, there are questions you want to ask people in heaven when you get to heaven, you, you, maybe questions you have from the Bible, and you're like, I, I would love to, love to ask them, what was going on there? Well, this is an example of, I would love, uh, when I get to heaven, to be able to ask Euodia and Syntyche, what, what were you guys arguing about in Philippi? You know, Paul doesn't say, but you know, what, what was going on there? And I imagine that they'll look at each other and smile and then they'll look at Jesus and smile because, you know, he'll be there. 
Maybe, maybe they'll remember what they were fighting about, but part of me hopes they'll just say, we don't remember, but look where we are now. Look who's here with us. The Lord Jesus Christ is here. That's why Paul is telling them, while they're still on earth, stand firm in the Lord. Anchor yourself in Christ. In him, you already have unity. Going back to Jack's broken bones, it's been eight weeks uh, we would go probably once every other week to get x-rays and get, kind of get check, a checkup to see how the bones were, were healing. And then, you know, they would show us the x-rays. And uh, one of the things that I thought was just fascinating uh, was uh, the first x-ray we got, you know, he, he, he broke both of these, the ulna and radius, he broke them, broke. Uh, and they showed us the x-rays, and, and well, I'll say one of the bones w- was more like this than the other. One of the bones, uh, when they reset it, it wasn't one-to-one like this. It wasn't exactly aligned, but one of the bones was offset just a little bit like this. And so I asked the doctor, I said, well, that doesn't look like that bone. Th- those two bones are they're not aligned. Is that something to be worried about? And she said, no. Uh, actually, what happens is, even when the bones are offset a bit like this, new bone will grow around the break and bridge, bridge the gap. And not only that, it won't, won't, won't not only just form a, a perfect bridge to, to heal the bone, but the, the jagged edge of the break, the jagged edge of the break will be uh, absorbed into the new bone as it envelops the break. And those jagged edges will also be smoothed away as it's absorbed into the new bone. Conflicts and differences of opinion will continue in the church. Sadly, there will be times when sin causes breaks in the body. And even after we come together and reconcile, there will be plenty of times when we are not perfectly aligned with one another. But the Spirit of God does the work to fuse his people back together perfectly in Christ. Christ is the bridge between us that surrounds us, that steadies us. Where friendship is broken, Christ is our reconciliation. Friends, if there was ever an irreconcilable difference, if there was ever an irreconcilable chasm, it was between us and God. If there was ever a relationship that showed disunity, it was us and God. We had no hope for peace. We only had strife, and that strife would last into eternity. But Jesus crossed over to us. And while we were still in cosmic conflict with him, While we still wanted nothing to do with unity with him, he died for us. Today, he absorbs the jagged edges of our pride, selfishness, and strife. His blood purchased our reconciliation and now we live with him and anchored in him as unified friends and brothers and sisters. That's who we are in Christ. He is our peace and his message is, 
is peace. His message through us is peace. It's peace for each other and it's peace for the world around us. The same grace available to Eudodia and Syntyche to repent, to seek forgiveness and walk in unity is available to us today. The same grace. That's good news, friends. And so, is God calling you? Is God calling you to humble yourself? Is God calling you to go to another brother and sister? Maybe even this morning. If not this morning, maybe this week. To go to another brother and sister and say, I want us to agree in the Lord. We're called to agree in the Lord. Friends, that's a, that's a beautiful work. Meaningful unity is beautiful and it's hard. It's, it's beautiful and it is hard. The enemy is always going to be working against this. The enemy loves our conflicts. He's always taking aim. He wants to use them to further disunify the church. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Can you imagine the possibilities when the church holds fast to the gospel and brothers and sisters reconcile with one another over lesser matters? Can you picture the tidal wave of love for one another that would be and how the unity could make the church so distinct in our age? Can you fathom that? Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? It's what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are unified with him. He brings us unity for one another in the church. May God have it be so. Let's pray. Father, this is our, this is our ask. This is our confession that our flesh, that in our flesh we have sinned. That we, there's something about us that thrives off conflict and disunity in such an ugly, sinful way. And so we confess this morning where that is happening, where it has happened, that we need your help. That we know that we can come to you because you have achieved for us in the work of Jesus Christ reconciliation and peace. We have peace with you because of the cross. We are able to be unified brothers and sisters because of the cross of Christ. The good gospel of Jesus Christ which took rebels and enemies and brought them near in unity. And so where this is true in our lives, will you help us to lay that down, to repent, ask for forgiveness, to go to one another in humility and agree in the Lord, to think the same things as you think because we have your mind, Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters where conflict might be present now, whether here in, uh, in this body or in our families or with our friends, whether those conflicts are, are personal in nature, if they're theological or political, we, we pray that we would uh, just have such hope in the gospel that we, we see what you have achieved on the cross and have available to us. And so... We pray that we might leave this place this morning encouraged of the unity that we have in Christ and what it affords us as we have a testimony and a witness to a, 
uh, a world that just continues in this uh, in the flames of outrage and disunity. May the world be able to look on the way that we love one another and know that we are your disciples. Oh, thank you so much, Father. We love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen.